Yo, hello. Hello. Bonjour. Konnichiwa. Mm-hmm. We just stopped there because we let's not go down that rabbit hole. This is Ergo. It is. This is the first time I've ever spoken Japanese on or off the radio. Well, congratulations. That's all I know. Yes. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. How are you feeling, Damon? I'm feeling good. Going through all my processes and systems, just... Just working and living. How about everything's you? everything's checking out. Everything's all right. How about you? I'm decent. My uh, yeah. my car is in the shop. Ah, I'm in preparation for a birthday next uh, week. Yes, it is almost that time. Which we'll discuss in more in more detail in uh, in the weeks to come. But uh, we have a very special no, guest. Just, just the week. Just the week. To come. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this will take us into 2019. Right. The debrief. Uh, we have a very uh, special guest in the building today. You wanna you wanna do the intro? Yeah. Um. Just a a, a brilliant human, uh, a loving soul, uh, and someone who I just admire and impressed by. And I don't even know all the things that you do. So I'm just gonna describe the way you impact me, uh, which is greatly. Everybody, wherever you at, make some noise. We got Benji Hart in the building. Bra, bra, bra. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, was, yes. it, it was it was a sad cat today. Uh, like, like, surprisingly, you know, life isn't always happy. That's it, true. And cats have spirits. <laughs> no, they get they get that full range of emotions. This is the weirdest. Yeah, we're weird right now. What is going on? I don't know. I blame Let, you. Let's get back. You no, know, I'll take full responsibility. <laughs> let's get back on track. We always uh, like to start the show in the same way with a two part question. In this time, in this moment, this season, how's the world treating you, and how are you treating the world, Benji? Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, I thought you would like that one. <sighs> yeah, so deep. <laughs> um, I, I think, I feel like I've been talking to folks a lot about this this week. But mm. you know, it's we're getting to the ends of the year. Mm-hmm. I think that's a reflective time mm-hmm. for everybody, mm-hmm. and I feel like, um, I feel like I'm in my Saturn returns. If you're gay. And you know about astrology and shit. <laughs> so I'm in my Saturn return, <laughs> hardcore. And um, I've just been through a, a couple of years of kind of heavy transition mm-hmm. and self-reflection and self-work. Can you name it? From what to what? From like time-wise? You said transition. So that's a relative concept. Lord. A whole bunch of types of stuff, to be honest. <laughs> but like breakups and... Mm, that'll do it. Okay. <laughs> and um, like transitioning out of jobs, mm-hmm. changing my path, sort of mm-hmm. changing yeah. changing my focus um, in terms of like the work that I want to do and, and the ways that I want to engage my people in my community and mm-hmm. where I want to put my energy and my focus and sort of looking hard at like what I need to work on and areas in which I as a human being need to grow and mm-hmm. get better. It's been a lot of that. Hmm. So, so before we go too far down the rabbit hole, because I, I know we're gonna go places. Okay. Uh, let's just let's just contextualize, guy, because I, I was uh, scarce in my introduction, but some vague of, and emotional, <laughs> but wonderful. <laughs> some of the work that that you know that I know that you do, you are uh, a writer, organizer, and performing artist. A lot of your work focuses, I would say, around the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality. Uh, how is that incomplete, or what would you add to describe your your public face and work so people listening can understand where we at? Um, I would describe myself as a writer, artist, and educator. Okay. Um, and I think the 
the work that matters most to me or the, uh, I think what I spend a lot of my time and energy um, caring about and thinking about is um, Black liberation, trans liberation, queer liberation, um, and for me, seeing police, prison, and military abolition mm -hmm. as core to all of those things. Um, and so as an educator um, who works with young people, um, mostly black and brown young people, um, as a writer, as a, a poet and a dancer, um, I try and bring those values to all the work that I do. And whether it's for myself, whether it's for my people, whether it's for my community, whether it's for next generations, I think um, thinking about how we get to a liberated world, um, which for me is a very abolitionist mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. venture and vision, I think that's kind of core to a lot of what I what I think about and um, am trying to focus on mm -hmm. um, with the work that I do. I think it could be a fair assumption that most people who will hear this conversation uh, would be prepared to understand abolition and liberation as inseparable, mm -hmm. but I don't want to make that assumption. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective and in your work right now, because, you know, abolition is a, is a generational process and project, right? So it's going to mean different things always in different times. Mm -hmm. So for you right now, uh, what is the intersection of liberation and, and abolition of these violent systems that, that govern our world? Well, first, I think it's important to say that I'm not from Chicago. Ooh, okay, let's I, get into some biography. <laughs> I feel like that's an important part of actually this conversation. It is. Um, because I'm from Massachusetts. I grew uh, up um, in Massachusetts on the where East in Massachusetts? Coast. Amherst, Massachusetts. Okay, a little okay. Western Mass game out here. Very okay. that. Okay. Do we not have... Real cutesy as fuck. <laughs> yeah, my mom went to college in Northampton. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, East Coasted. Go ahead. Take that just, I, I know that I'm basking in the, the in the Western Coast. Massachusetts absurdity glow. <laughs> that is of of all the of all the like microcosm white liberal utopias. Okay, that's my favorite. <laughs> if I were to rank oh, them, we need to make a list. The, like day. the Portlands, the Ann Arbors, <laughs> the Amherst, <laughs> Western the Madison. Madison. It's just the prettiest landscape of all of them. It's like real tea. It's yeah. like actually real tea. Yeah. Uh, to describe it as a white liberal haven. <laughs> um. But yeah, that's where I grew up. So in a very uh, middle-class, majority white, liberal haven. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's actually the, I'm half black, half white, and it's actually the white side of my family that's from the Chicago area. Mm. I grew up uh, in Massachusetts, which is where my black family is from, mm. um, rural Massachusetts. Um, but A, I think that's important to name because uh, that informs a lot of the work that I do, being someone who's not from this city. Um, and who is a guest here, yeah. um, that's, uh, that informs a lot of how I at least try to uh, enter into the work and enter into a lot of the spaces that I'm a part of. In what way, like what are the particulars of how you try to think about that contribution to the city? I think, I think contribution is actually a good word um, because uh, I, I hope and I work hard in the work that I do to try and actually be supporting um, the efforts and the genius of uh, folks who are actually from here hmm. um, rather than trying to insert my own. Um, and I think that's a that's a really important role of an educator, um, which is, I would say, kind of the core or the brunt of a lot of the work that I do is um, supporting other people yeah. in 
formulating their own ideas, making their own commitments, um, and naming what liberation looks like for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a that's yeah. kind of a, a an important focus or an important uh, ethic that I do my best to bring. Um, but I also think it's important to name that I'm not from Chicago because I think if I didn't live here, um, I wouldn't be doing the kind of work that I do. Mm -hmm. I think I've been so influenced by um, the really specific uh, values and ethics and histories of struggle um, that are in this city, specifically in the Black community um, in this city. And I think even abolition as an idea uh, is not something I was introduced to before I moved We may here. be running the abolition game. I think that's extremely possible. <laughs> I don't want to give I'm people too much of life, yeah. you know. <laughs> Though Amherst is leading the gluten abolition. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true. I don't know if Amherst is leading any abolitionist efforts of any kind. But I haven't been there in a that's while. A reform I haven't space. been back in a while. <laughs> we just we need like a community meeting between the gluten advocates. And the <laughs> More dialogue, some gluten <laughs> incrementalism. <laughs> Just really bubbling up, you know, to the surface. But, but I really, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the the um, intention of the language of guest, and you know, I I didn't know that, uh, and I definitely would consider you at home here. So for both of y'all, as transplants who have been very intentional about how to engage, being in a different space, period, but also being in Chicago and our specific history, where is that line, or how do you see the transition from guest? to home, right? Like, mm. when, what, what does that take? Uh, and, and why do you still see yourself as a guest? Because mm. I don't see you as a guest. I see you as a fan. That means so much. And I really appreciate that. I think it's a really good question because yeah. I think these are all such complicated fault lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think Chicago is very much feels like home for me. I've been here for about six and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um which is the longest I've ever lived anywhere other than Massachusetts. Right. So I, I definitely feel like I have roots here and I definitely feel like I have community here that has held me down in ways that are unlike any other community I've ever belonged to. And um, I definitely see myself here for the long haul. Um, but that being said, um, I think there's so much history that I'm always learning. Yeah. Um, there's so much about individual neighborhoods and communities uh, and networks in the city that I'm always discovering new things about, being taught uh, new things about. And I think uh, I think gentrification is a word we should bring into the conversation. Yes. And I think even me as a person of color, even me as a queer person of color, I'm middle class, I'm formally educated, um, I come from a middle class family. Um, I think uh, gentrification and displacement is something I still um, can participate in. Um, and in many ways, like even me just being here in this city does represent demographic shifts that like I need to be real about and honest about, especially when I'm coming into um, spaces where, where folks who are from the city are like running things. But I want to get specific about language. Do you think it represents it or do you think it's a part of it? Because Good point. I, I think that that's an important distinction um, because it's kind of the difference between like complicity mm. and like the active, there are ways that it's active, but I think there's also like, we've talked a lot about this on the air, like where does the, the kind of eye of the storm live? And mm. sometimes it, 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 it's a moving target, but it's important to like really focus on like who is at the center of this, who are the people profiting most from this and who is participating. It's not to let the people who are participating off the hook, 
Um, but it is to have a more nuanced analysis of what's going on. Yes. Um, so that all that, like learning the lineages and, and picking that apart makes sense and definitely rings true. The thing that, and I'm curious if this rings true for you, that's been, I'd say in the last year, surprising and what has helped me feel more at home here is having a more nuanced understanding of what are the places from, what are the things from where I grew up that I actually am bringing here. Hmm. So it's not just about I am a guest here. Uh, it's that I am bringing these things from somewhere else here because I'm not coming in as a blank slate. Right. Um, and, and understanding the way those things connect and intersect and um, like what's the same here versus New York, what's different, and not in the pizza way that we can talk about that. That's <laughs> well, what, what does that look like if not pizza? I mean, I've been having a lot of conversations about diaspora in a different way and in the ways that that works for different communities in New York versus Chicago. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. <laughs> a person. <laughs> Shout out to that person. <laughs> I'm not being vague. I just literally can't remember who I was talking to. But I was talking about how growing up, like if I saw a black person, I did not assume that they spoke English. Mm. And the difference between that and in Chicago, obviously there are, it's not, monolithic in that way but there is kind of at least an assumption i do but i see a black person I, i'll take that for you <laughs> get you off the hook that, i assume that a black removing that from my shoulders but, but having that understanding and, and how does that inform the way we think about those lineages and those histories of resistance and as i've been trying to kind of expand my global scope a little bit um connecting those dots has been and this is all like intellectual work that's not like emotional work but uh Doing that both on the micro internal and on the like historical lineage level has been really helpful mm. and interesting. Just like I'm like, oh, this is what I'm actually interested in. Um, so for you, like, what are there any things from from previous home that you feel like you're surprisingly relying on here or mm. are coming up more and more? That is such a deep question. This is what we do. Bang, <sighs> Lord. <laughs> I think. Wow. I think. I love what you're saying or sort of what you're getting at with like not being a blank slate. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And I think for me as a, someone who's not from Chicago or didn't grow up in Chicago, I think that that's such an important ethic as well of not that you bring nothing to the table, right. but being conscientious of what you bring in positive and negative ways. Mm -hmm. That it's like, you know, here's here are resources that I bring, and then also here are like some of the problems that I bring, which at the end of the day is true for all of us, right. you know, whenever we enter into a community <laughs> or a new space, but, but is also really different for each one of us based right. on who we are and where we come from. So I think, I think there's, I think there are things that I bring that I should own and be proud of absolutely <laughs> <laughs> but also then being being aware of privilege or being aware of um ways that you could cause yeah, harm too sure. um but i think what you're saying is actually so deep because i think um we actually don't need the answer i just wanted the credit for a deep <laughs> no i'm, I'm curious you're deep, period. <laughs> um but i think i think for me as a a black person who grew up on the East Coast, I have a really different relationship to blackness mm -hmm. um, than a lot of the communities and a lot of the folks that I now am a part of and now live with in Chicago. And that was actually one of the biggest um, adjustments or, or kind of culture shocks for me when I came here <laughs> was where I grew up, uh, 
I was actually usually in the minority as a Black person from the U.S., Mm -hmm. that, like, most of my Black friends were Caribbean immigrants, African immigrants, Afro-Latinos. And me being very light-skinned, I also grew up being read as Puerto Rican almost all the time. That's why I just chuckled when you didn't say anything funny, because I realized (laughs) that this whole time I thought you were Black and Puerto Rican from Humble Park. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. I feel like you had more cornrow action in like 2015, 2016. (laughs) And that was how you were read? I just just read you as a Humble Park native. (laughs) I think, low-key, I still think there's a lot of folks in community, even, who think I'm Puerto Rican (laughs) and just like self-identify as Black. Because they're Black Puerto Rican. Exactly. Right? And that's what I, that's definitely my assumption. Because <laughs> you even have like a little like Latin, like, and like you do the, all the, the bomba <laughs> and the music stuff, which that's we'll get true. into. But it's yeah, true. That's hilarious. I grew up around a lot of Puerto Ricans. Okay. All and right. I was, I have been read as Puerto Rican that's for a so really funny. long time. Yeah. But definitely, I'm, I'm actually used to people not thinking I'm black or at least not thinking I'm African American mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like it, nigga. Okay. <laughs> Me too. That's what I go for. I didn't know what I didn't know what we was allowed to say. <laughs> but but I, we're, we're here. <laughs> Afro American. Okay. Put the roll the R. <laughs> Damn. But definitely when I came to Chicago, uh, I, I'm used to people reading me in certain ways, but I'm also n- n- used to that not actually being a barrier. Mm-hmm. And Chicago, it was for a really long time. Mm where I wasn't welcome in black spaces or I was assumed to not be from a certain uh, experiences and so wasn't welcomed or wasn't trusted mm. um, right away. Um, and it took a really long time for me um, in Chicago to build trust with black folks. Is it took a really long time. Could, is, are you comfortable speaking about the specifics of that? Yeah. In, as much or as little as you yeah. want to share, yeah. yeah how, for sure. How did that go? Um, it, mostly it took time. Um, and actually, Black Lives Matter was a big part of me finding Black community mm. um, in the city because kind of, uh, you can tell me how, many, how much detail you want me to go into. I'm open for it all, okay. but I don't want to pressure you. Okay. Into, into well, you know, I'm, a, I'm this also a— This is a radical a, gossip podcast. That's cute. <laughs> I'm also a, a voguer. Um, mm-hmm. So I started voguing when I was 16, and I joined uh, the House of Ninja when I was 18. Um, and so when I came out here, uh, my house, the, the the House of Ninja in Chicago was kind of my my intro to the city. And that's really who had my back the first mm-hmm. couple of years that I was here and was like um, just holding me down in all different type of ways. And those are still some of the people in the city that I love most and have been core to just what being in Chicago means. And also um, the the house chapter here at the time that I came here was predominantly Mexican. Mm. Um, and so also that meant like my first networks and like my first community that I had here mm-hmm. was almost exclusively Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um and that was even a culture shock where when I my first got here, my mother was showing me around and I was going out with my sisters, going to the club, going to house parties and stuff. And it I was here for a couple of months before I was like, oh my gosh, if this is my only network, I will only meet Mexican people. <laughs> like if I'm gonna meet folks other than queer Mexican folks who I love and who are beautiful. <laughs> But, you know, I need my people. Segregation. And, like, I got to do work. Yeah. (laughs) So, I, you know, where I'm from, race and and those fault lines, again, function very differently. So I I wasn't kind of prepared for that where I was like, oh, if I'm going to find black folks, that might be actually be work I need to do on my own. Mm -hmm. And so so how did that journey go? It took a long time. Mm -hmm. And, And there were some times, especially when I was new here, that I really felt that lack and I really felt like, 
damn, I it is really hard to like as someone who's not from here, um, to find black folks and and really to build trust with black folks. Yeah. And um, one of the first big political events that transpired um, after I moved here was the school closings. Mm-hmm. I moved in two thousand and. Uh, 12 Mm -hmm. and then the school closings happened in 2013 and I was actually um, getting my master's at UIC at the time in elementary education Mm. Um, so I was working in schools and I was actually student teaching in uh, one of the schools that closed oh wow Um, which school? uh, Stockton on the north side um, which absorbed and became Courtney Um, so that's what it is currently that's an uptown Um, and that was such a traumatic event for me um (laughs) just witnessing the school closings and and being a part of a community that was directly impacted um, by it. But it was also such a huge learning experience for me because I saw, for me, I was like, I cannot believe that this just happened. Yeah. Like, this is, for me, one of the most blatantly racist like, events I've ever witnessed. Yeah. And seeing genocidal. a lot of people, people are like, literally with, genocidal. Without bullets, yeah. and people literally. are like, well, wait till you hear about the rest of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, this is, this is part for the course. <laughs> and that's what really gagged me was for me, this event knocking me on my ass yeah. and seeing other black people in the city totally take it on the chin yeah, and seeing th- other black people in the city just be like, you know, it's Tuesday in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. And, and me, I think that was actually a really important moment for me to be like, oh, this city and black folks in the city specifically are dealing with trauma on an hourly basis yeah. that I have actually never dealt with. And mm. it actually makes sense that people don't trust outsiders. Mm. And it actually makes sense that I, as someone who's not from Chicago, someone who's middle class, someone who's light skinned, da 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 da, um, <laughs> have to have to do some work yeah. and have to prove myself before yeah. people are going to trust me because people are taking advantage and harming black people in the city literally all the time. Yeah, let, let's let's. I want to like. I think all of us can speak towards that like sense of responsibility. For, I don't even want to use the word privilege, but that's obviously a part of it. But I think like from protection specifically, mm-hmm. uh, because you know I as the the native Chicagoan here, the native Black Chicagoan, lived on the South Side all but three years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I too was protected in many ways from like the day to day harms and trauma. I had relationship to it, and I was it was easier for me to get an analysis, but like. I was not materially and physically impacted on the day to day, even hmm. though the responses we had to take, you know, like my mom saying, I will not have a black boy in Chicago public schools because I saw how my daughter's black male classmates were treated mm-hmm. and like being very intentional of like trying to find all black schools or trying to stay outside of the public school system. Specifically, mm-hmm. I think is like, at the cornerstone of my my privilege uh, and also feeling isolated while hmm. still being in the community. You know, like everybody I knew outside of school was going to public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 it won, I think, similarly to that, what you're saying, like feeling like you have to like prove yourself or like earn space in the struggle, uh, but also feeling like very, very responsible because um, hmm. There's trauma that I've not internalized, right? And trauma is harm with which you cannot cope. And so I feel like, oh, I have to do more because I have not experienced the violence at the same level that just in the struggle, just in movement that other people have. But then if you go the city overall and the, you know, the million and a half or however many black people are still living here as of today, uh, there's like a real sense of like it was burden and it's it's growing into more of a healthy responsibility. Mm. 
how does it shift from burden to responsibility? Therapy. <laughs> no tea. Oh, that's great. And I think like what... Jokingly, but kind of serious. Yeah. Okay. No shade. I think it's such an important... It really goes back, I feel like, to what we're talking about in terms of sort of awareness of what you bring to community and to movement. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is that complicated balance of, A, feeling the need to step up because I have privilege i have resources i have capacity Mm -hmm. i'm Um, not triggered in the same i'm not triggered in the same way like let me step up but then also i'm not the one who's directly impacted by the thing that we're talking about or that we're fighting around um and also not wanting to overtake or um drown out those that are um and and I think being aware of kind of holding both of those things at the same time and even just from scenario to scenario or action to action being like this, you know, really checking in and and trying to be honest about this is what my role should be right now and this is what my role shouldn't be right now. And it's all, you know, you're still just one person. (laughs) (laughs) Like, even if you're not as directly affected, like, Exactly. That doesn't mean that you're like, oh, well, then I also control the TIFF budget. Like, <laughs> hello, <laughs> you either you are can't be impacted by everything. Yeah, <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't work like that. So right. you know, and, and I think sometimes, and I understand tax incremental funding, a little communal communal definition. <laughs> so what it means is, in certain neighborhoods, there's a pot that, as property values rise, the surplus in tax growth does not go back to the general pot of the city. It is to stay in that neighborhood for development. So a big part of why the South Loop has gone from 91% low income to like 30% low income in like a three-year span is because as the property value increased, they used it to build bigger buildings and shiny, fancy things while basically taking resources away from the public school system, per se. TIFF. The more you know. (laughs) But but just thinking about like the the degrees of relative that it's not like you know because you were sheltered in those ways that therefore you have the access to like no there isn't actually any even the like the mayor doesn't have the like there's nobody who can like like that take on all of that responsibility and change it all even if they wanted mm-hmm. to so I, I don't know I think about like and that that can that knowledge can be paralyzing because you feel like oh I have like this responsibility that you're talking about. And then how do you mitigate that by like saying, well, I'm going to do what I can. Mm -hmm. And some people can do more than others. And some people can do things in different ways. So, um, but I want to go back actually to something. Let's go back. We're talking about the, the like, well, this is just Tuesday reality of Mm it. And it just got me thinking about like the dark side of resiliency. When I say that sentence, (laughs) what do you think? Oh, I think of so many things. I hear like exhaustion in the word resiliency, <laughs> that it's, you know, not everyone has to be resilient. Um, it's it's a skill, it's a power. Yeah. And like so many things that I think black people have, it's like amazing that you can do it and you shouldn't have to do it. Exactly. It's beautiful what you're able to do. And the fact that you even know you're able to do it is like fucked up yeah. in and of itself. Um Right, I can be pushed, you know, someone knowing that they can be pushed to the limits right. and make it through is, yeah, it's a source of strength that you shouldn't have to tap into and rely on over yes. and over and over and over yes. again. And, and, you know, the, you know, to, for lack of a better word, privilege of 
the ability to say like, I can't do this Mm -hmm. or like, I don't have the bandwidth or the capacity or the, like the space in my life to do this. And so I'm going to take a step back of all of the things that seems like one that is kind of like the most, uh, valuable. I think, um, I'm thinking about, uh, Adrian Marie Brown. Shout out. Shout out. Squad. Emerging strategy. Should, if it's not on the book list already, will be. Yeah. Oh, it's I'm pretty up there. sure check, it's up there. Check the Ergo yeah. reading list at ergoradio.com. It's on there. <laughs> but I think she's someone who's really good at codifying a lot of abolitionist values. Mm. Um, and she talks about specifically, you know, so much of her work around Octavia Butler. She talks about um, how a utopia or a world with no problems doesn't exist right. mm-hmm. or isn't really uh, you you don't That's abolish not it's not the goal yeah. you don't abolish the police and prison system and then have no problems and then have a perfect world but you abolish the police and prison system so that you can actually take on a different set of problems and a different set of issues um and for me that's quote that Okay. <laughs> and for me, that's so that's so important, not just to understanding uh, abolition in a realistic way, but for me, it's actually so important for understanding blackness mm-hmm. in a realistic way, mm-hmm. where it's like, actually, what if we didn't have to worry about school closings and homelessness and, and losing mental health clinics so that we could focus on healing mm-hmm. all the intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. we're carrying? Mm-hmm. That it's like, there's actually so much hurt and yeah. pain that we have never had the chance to even look at mm-hmm. and address as like a community. The, the, like the boot didn't come yeah. off. From yes. Instead, of, instead of having to always resist educational yes. dis- disinvestment, we can actually redesign education anyway because exactly. even if the public schools were perfectly funded, exactly. it's still a harmful system. And that's where abolition is about so much more than the police and prison system because mm-hmm. like actually the school system also has to be abolished yes. and actually mental health and healthcare as it currently exists also needs yeah. to be abolished. But like we can't even get there. We have so <laughs> much we gotta like get out People of jail don't even know what it is yeah. <laughs> right 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 but that's so that i think that's so real that it's like actually a whole new set of of, of challenges and of difficult conversations emerges hmm. after you get through the first one yeah mm-hmm. i mean people got problems people got problems <laughs> but but for me that would be actually uh, that for me, that's such a, a beautiful vision for Black liberation mm-hmm. of like, oh my gosh, now we can finally talk about healing, or now we can finally talk about like what's going on in the family or what's going on in the neighborhood, and do some work around that because we don't have to worry about where our kids are going to go to school tomorrow mm-hmm. or how to get our cousin out of jail or you know, into rehab right now. Like that stuff has actually been handled and taken care of. Mm -hmm. And now we can actually focus on this whole new set of questions and problems that we deserve the space and the time to focus on. The the shitty part about the world is that it never pauses for you to be able to do those things. Right. So how have you been trying to bring in some piece of that other part uh, kind of in in real time? Because there's not going to be the break to be like, huh, let's take a step back. And just for you personally, not even for the whole world. Shout out to therapy. Mm-hmm. I started therapy about two years ago. Okay. And it has helped so much. Um, and I think going back to what you had said about the, the privilege of saying no or the privilege of saying I don't have the bandwidth right now, I think that's, that is absolutely a privilege that I 
have in my life for lots of reasons, but it's one that I try to not feel guilty about yeah. exercising mm-hmm. and being like, okay, I, I need to rest today or I need to not think about the police today because I've been thinking about them all week and I'm <laughs> sad and I'm angry and I need a moment. Mm-hmm. And they don't deserve all your mental and space. And Lord Jesus, they don't. <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, I think saying no is a huge part of that and it is a privilege. I don't know that I talk about this often, but it's something I talked with uh, Paige May and Monica Trinidad a lot about, actually. Shout out, shout out. I ran into Paige yesterday, actually, on Uh, the street. Just on the street? I was talking about one open mic, and she was talking about another, and we were very confused. But then we got through that anyway. (laughs) Go on. They're they're both such uh, gifts in my life, and Mm -hmm. I learned so much from both of them. Um, But something I talk to them a lot about is actually, for me, not— identifying with the words activist and organizer um, because for me it sounds like an official title for something that I don't feel like A, I know what I'm doing um, but B, that I do in an official capacity. For me it's like I love Black people and Black people are going through shit and I have to show up to say the least because I love Black people to say the least (laughs) but it it actually doesn't feel like you know I am an organizer or I make the choice to be an activist. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to, you know, mm-hmm. someone you love is going through something and you have to, have to organize protect and them active. and love them by showing up for them. Yeah. And again, in a complicated way, it can feel like exhausting because it's like who no one else is showing up for black people. So we got to show up for each other mm-hmm. and we got to show up for ourselves. And in another beautiful way, it's like that's a part of being black is showing up Um and is loving ourselves and loving each other when we know other people and and the systems that we're stuck in aren't going to do that work. Um, and that can be a very intense or a very um, sad and and draining kind of reality that it's like, if, if I don't do this or if we don't do this, it's literally not going to happen. So we have to. And also, there's no one else I trust to do it. And there's no one else I'm interested in doing it. Um, so kind of I guess I guess I'm relating this back to that question and in, in that it's like um it it can feel like a burden or it can feel like an obligation or it can feel daunting and unfair. And also it's part of what makes black folks and black communities so unique and so beautiful and so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um and I wouldn't give that up for anything also at the exact same time. And so from that, I want to get back into the story a little bit because you said that you came to the city uh, and and you were immersed in a a queer Latinx Mexican community. Mm -hmm. And you had stated before that, that it was, you know, BLM and the movement for black lives, which is late 2014, early 2015, where you really started to um, have a shift in your relationship to blackness and also find community here in Chicago. Uh, And so I want to, I want to parse out some of that story a little bit and what were the spaces? Are there any like key moments that you kind of look at as, as turning points and, and, and let's, let's fill in the gap of the story. Oh, well, um, like I said, I was, uh, going to school for elementary education. I was Mm -hmm. in CPS schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was uh, a witness to the school closings. And that was so deeply painful um, and sad. And, you know, I, I, I saw young people whose lives that decision ruined. And that 
Mm. I'm still devastated by that in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, But I remember Ferguson Mm -hmm. so, so vividly, as I know most of us do. Um, But for me, I remember um, seeing the riots happening and seeing uh, footage of folks, uh, you know, up against tanks and throwing bricks and really going in mm-hmm. not not protesting <laughs> not marching yeah. really going in and i remember uh you know I, I turned on the tv it was you know cbs or who knows some white news anchor talking to these two brothers in the street <laughs> and they were not academics they were not you know using organizer or <laughs> or theoretical language they were just like we're done with this shit and we're not doing it anymore and y'all not going to do this to us anymore and i remember feeling so proud Mm -hmm. that that was black people out there Mm -hmm. taking that stand Mm -hmm. and fighting back unapologetically. And I remember it also being this incredibly painful moment too, because I realized how long it had been since I felt proud to be black. Mm -hmm. And that that doesn't mean I hated being black or was, you know, ashamed of my blackness, but that especially active pride. Active pride because because for so long blackness meant school closings and blackness meant uh people not caring about you and people throwing you out and uh and I had I realized that just again kind of being new to Chicago, that is what the, that was like the primary feeling I had been associating with blackness yeah. mm-hmm. up to that moment. And yeah. that's like the the narrative that as you know, coming in, that's what you're told, at least in the context of Chicago, it means yes. like those things are conflated so yes. clearly. And even just the word black lives, the, the phrase black lives matter rising up. I was like, that is it. <laughs> that is what I needed someone to say yeah. that no one has been saying yeah. is that I matter. These young people I love matter. The neighborhood I live in matters. Like that's what no one has been saying mm-hmm. that I just needed to hear someone say. Mm-hmm. And of course it was black queer women that said it. Hello. Um, but that was such a, as you said, such a shift for me in my blackness, mm-hmm. in my relationship to my own blackness, but certainly in my relationship to black people um, in this city. And um, so many of my, so many of the folks that I'm now closest with are folks who we were just locking arms next to each other, right. or a car tried to hit them, and somebody, you know, got in the way and blocked it, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, we down now. Do you remember some of those first moments where the relationships were able to be made? So I see, I see you like seeing. The from because did you did you make any were you able to get down to Ferguson at all no no so you so you saw Ferguson I saw Ferguson and within a few weeks right we were very active here in the city yes. uh, and so do you do you remember like who the faces were or who the spaces or, yeah who were you locked arms or with? what what dates or or any specific actions that were really transformative the first Black Lives Matter march I participated in was downtown at the very end I want to say December mm-hmm. of two thousand and fourteen. And I was turned. I was like so <laughs> hyped. And um, I had my red, black, and green flag. Uh, like, oh, I was turned. <laughs> and um, um, and I was just so angry. And and I felt like, again, poor black folks in Ferguson had like given me this permission mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, we can turn up. Yeah. I don't have to be yeah. sad. Yeah, yeah, I don't have yeah. to just like sit in my house and be like, this shit is fucked up and there's nothing I can do. Yeah, like, actually, we're allowed to turn up. Yeah. We can yell, we can curse, we can have rhythm. We can we do can, whatever we can, the we hell we want. We can dance while we do it. Okay. <laughs> and I just got really, really turned. And um, uh, we broke through a police line and uh, took over an intersection. 
uh, I was wearing my winter coat at the time, and a police officer ripped the the uh, the fur off my hood. <laughs> he grabbed my hood, and I just kept going. <laughs> That's not a metaphor for something. I don't know what it is. And the fur, it was fake fur, mind you. <laughs> but the fur just kept ripped, just got ripped off, and I was like, "Girl, I'm I'm gone." Um, but we took over the intersection, and this was new for a lot of us. Right, right, um, right. I had never taken over an intersection yeah. before. And so it was not coordinated. It was real sloppy, but we was Unintentional there. pun. We taken over intersections. Keep going. Hey. <laughs> um, but I wow. remember, I will never forget this, that the, um, the, the police told us, you know, move or you're getting arrested. And everybody move except the queer people. I will never forget this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, every, people literally just like unlocked their arms and, and walked out the street. <laughs> and all the queer and trans people were like, what is y'all doing? <laughs> like, come back. And we, I, it was like, we were literally blocking like one lane of traffic in like, you know, a four lane uh, uh-huh, intersection. Uh-huh. But we wasn't going. We're like, nope, I'm not going. And um, that, the, the police jumped on top of me and uh, I got arrested. Okay. I was one of like, uh, I think like six people that got arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had not planned on that. I was just really turned. And, but I realized, A, I realized I had done something really dangerous unintentionally. And Mm. it was like a learning moment for Uh, me. I was like, okay, so don't do that next time. Like, don't get arrested unless you got a plan. (laughs) But people knew what to do. And I didn't know Hmm. what to do. Mm -hmm. But people looked me up. People found out where I was being held. They came, people marched from downtown to the station where folks were being held. And I was just like, oh my gosh. People know, like, there's people in this city who know what they're doing. Yeah. And there's people in this city who have done this a lot of times. Um, and just things like that where, A, a building trust um, by showing, like, nah, I'm ready to, to show up for my people and I'm ready to turn up for my people. Mm-hmm. And it's not just talk. Like, that being a way of building trust. Um, but then also seeing who shows up for you and also realizing, like, wow, that person who is, like, really cool and really nice also knows how to get people out of jail right. um, and how to mobilize legal teams. And, like, wow, people are really resourced and and wise. And I know who I can go to now the next time I get arrested on purpose <laughs> instead of on accident. Um, and, and, again, how many of those people were uh, black women and women of color? Um, how many of those people were trans people um, and gender nonconforming people? Um, and just, like, realizing all the different ways um, that you're not alone mm-hmm. um, and all the mm-hmm. different ways that that people have your back um, when you dare to show up for each other. Mm. Hmm. Mm. So you mentioned that uh, kind of the, the dual learning of that moment of like both there are these people who know what they're doing who will show up for you, then also being able to show that like you are ready to show up and turn up in the ways that you do. Was that showing other people that or was that mostly like proving that to yourself I might actually say it was showing other people that okay. I might actually say that um, like cause... did you did, had you ever thought of yourself as someone who might go and lock arms in the middle of the street and block traffic and get arrested for it I think so cause <laughs> cause you know A black people like to turn up but B queer people like to turn up mm. and we got a long history of that Mm. And I think... And you were versed in that history at that point already? And I was versed in that history okay. at that point. <laughs> but also, not uh, not just in a, not just in a, like a, 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 a academic or a, like a bookie way of being versed in that history, right. but also just like being a part of community. Yeah, yeah. Being a part of queer and trans community specifically and being like, oh no, we turn up all the time. Right. Like, y'all out here think it's sweet. Like, no, we turn up all the time. 
Hmm. For me, it was not not as much of me proving it to myself because mm. I think I've always actually wanted and felt ready to like go hard. You just needed the the you needed the the context you and the, the permission, yeah, yeah. right? And again, as like a middle class black person, as a formally educated black person, I feel like it was black folks from the hood right. that gave me that permission. Absolutely. They were like, "No, it's time. Like, yeah. no, we don't have to do all this. Yeah. It's time." <laughs> um, and so I think it it was about the the window or the moment being created. Um, and us being ready to rush in yeah. and and fill it, yeah. and I I think I was waiting for that to happen, um, and I think the window actually created the opportunity for us to like look around and be like, who else is here? Yeah, you know, who else has been waiting mm-hmm. for yeah. this opportunity? Because actually, a oh lot my of god, us there's have. so many of us. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I, I have a direct follow up to where we are, but just like for the record, for the archive, you, you've mentioned formal education a few times. Where did you go to school? I uh, majored in African American studies. True. At Wesleyan University okay, in Middletown, okay. Connecticut. Right. That's where I got my bachelor's. Did it suck or was it all right? It sucked. It's the right. short answer. All right, that's it's all the I short answer. <laughs> I actually loved uh, black studies. Word. Yeah, I actually yeah. got a lot out you of it. You benefited from it, but it still sucked. No. I, and it was definitely like other parts of the institution that sucked. Yeah, yeah. I went and visited there once, and I went and they the, they were having a football game, like a full football game, not a pickup game, mm-hmm. in the middle of campus. <laughs> like, I'm not going. <laughs> this isn't going to work. It's like, me. don't do it if that's what you do. That's it's just, hilarious. At least, like, build the field. Like, this is, we're walking here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tour. I not, literally know exactly. I'm not going to cut across the 40 yard yeah. line to get to the, Wait to the library. Third down. <laughs> but, all right. So, back to where. So, I'm, um, I'm struggling to, like, put it in question form. So, I'll just, like, keep talking to the idea and let you take it wherever you want. But you started off. I think it was like the first thing you said in like introducing yourself that like black, queer, and trans liberation is inseparable from abolition, right? And we and we stay pretty deep in black liberation. Where we are right now, I think, is really highlighting um, the intersection of gender and sexuality and the the real radical, you know, resistance history in those communities. Um, and so, yeah, again, I, you you can throw in if you. I, I'm struggling to like yeah. put that into question, uh, and so I just want to. I got one. Discuss that more. Yeah, yeah. So when you say that, like being versed in that history meant like we turn up all the time. Where's that liberatory turn up that you are like? This is what we do. We're prepared for this in certain ways that y'all, you know, normative folks might not be. <laughs> no, Tino Shay. <laughs> you can throw some shade at you too. <laughs> well, I think for one example. The ballroom scene, we could do a whole podcast yeah. on because it's complicated. I'm actually working on a new uh, performance piece cool. that's tentatively titled World After This One. Mm. Um, that's sort of looking at all the different ways that black art forms can be both oppressive and liberatory at the same mm. time. Um, and how can, can something be the source of trauma and the source of healing at the same time Ooh. is a lot of what I'm kind of I know of that was a rhetorical about. question, but I think the answer is yes. <laughs> go for it um, but that's to say um, I think Ballroom and Vogue specifically is a really prime example of that and a lot of folks don't know um, that voguing actually started in Rikers Island prison mm-hmm. so voguing was actually invented mm-hmm. by incarcerated queer and trans people while they were incarcerated that's yeah. where it began so the ballroom scene is in some ways uh, can be a very like queer normative space and, and mm. not the most welcoming or, or, or liberatory space all the time. And at the same time has a, a direct lineage from uh, the police and prison system, has always been resisting uh, the police and prison system, has always been uh, up against um, and in many ways creating 
beauty and resiliency yeah. in response to uh, incarceration, among all the other things that mm-hmm. oppress uh, poor Black, queer, and trans people. Um, but growing up and, and Vogue being kind of my first intro to queer community and queer culture taught me so much about how militant um, hmm. trans and queer people are in ways that are, I think, purposefully invisibilized, but also just like generally not understood. Um, what do you mean by militant? It's an interesting word choice. I mean, like, again, it's like, who's actually turning up every day? Like, who's actually up against these systems in like a concrete way yeah. every single day? I originally was in uh, the House of Ninja in New York. I was part of the New York chapter before I was part of the Chicago chapter. And the first summer that I went there to Vogue, I was 18 and I was so naive. Mm-hmm. And I, so I was just running around, living my little baby queer life. Um, but I got into so much trouble. I'm just like imagining you getting off the bus at Port Authority. You're just like, I'm here. No, it was <laughs> I'm like, in New York. Like, I'm not proud, but it was very that. <laughs> like, I'm I'm glad it was not on film because it would have looked a lot like that. But For the biopic, it'll be a great scene, though. But things like I jump turnstiles and stuff just because the girls I was with was doing it. They're like, oh, you have to get on the train. You don't have to pay. Here, just do this. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and Lord, I could have gotten into so much more trouble than I did. Um, if that's the like worst thing you did in New York at 18, it was jump a turnstile. I feel like there's other stories, but you don't have to go there if you don't want to. I did. That summer was actually the first time I got arrested, mm. um, which I can tell that story as well. Um, but that was my first interaction with the police, I will say, happened mm. that summer. Mm. My, my first uh, violent interaction with the police mm. happened that summer. Um but all that's to say, uh, the reality of of poverty, of sex work, of um, homelessness, the things that um, young Black trans people specifically are navigating on a minute-to-minute basis just means that they are always being surveilled, they are always being threatened, they are always being targeted, um, and in some ways are interacting with the police and prison system in a more regular way than even other black folks mm-hmm. um, in ways that don't get recognized. And that mean people are constantly figuring out ways of avoiding that system, resisting that system, mm-hmm. finding dignity um, and power for themselves while being incarcerated, while being surveilled mm-hmm. and harassed. Um, and, you know, that goes back to the the police riots, you know, trans police riots of the, the 1950s right. and 60s, mm-hmm. but arguably goes back much further than that and also arguably has never stopped or mm-hmm. has never not been happening. So I, I want to um, I want to offer space to like uh, not not be challenged because I don't it's not like I'm not coming from left field, but I think my privileged intersectional politic is limited in terms of how uh I express the structural nature of why we need to forefront uh, queer and trans liberation. So mm-hmm. here, here's what I'll say: like I know I know a lot of those stats and like concepts, uh, but often when I'm speaking to cis hetero people about why we need to um, prioritize this intersectional politic and understand gender and sexuality, it is usually much more on an intercommunal basis instead of a structural state basis. Mm-hmm. So the way I usually look at it is. You know, especially just like if we stay within the black community, uh, black queer people, black queer women, black trans women, right, are harmed by our own community in such uh, damaging and destructive and fatal ways, right, that 
our liberation movement, not the resistance. Just our movement is then limited because we are literally killing off our own people or excluding our own people who could strengthen us objectively, but also have a more crisp understanding mm. of how oppression really works and all of the multiple compounded layers of it. Mm. Uh, but the reason why I feel that that is limited is that I think it lets the state and certain systems off the hook. Uh, and I, I, I think I should be better and starting at that root. Mm. Uh, it's not just like the bigotry of some dude on the corner, you know, that that is at the root. That's more the product. Yes. And, but, yes. It, but but for me, it's abstract, right? The state right. makes us violent. Right. And then we put that on our people who are marginalized. Right. But it, it's that's like putting, that's still putting cis hetero people in the middle. And I know that there's a more direct connection between the structures and the state and these more marginalized communities. So that's kind of my limitation, and I want to like yeah. figure out how I can expand that. I think that is so important. And actually, um, I think I think there's actually, I'm not saying you're anti-black, but I think, <laughs> I think there's actually a lot of anti-blackness yeah, in that yeah, approach. Yeah. And it, That would have um, been a really interesting twist on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could, you know, I, I got it in me. No. I'm an American. <laughs> this is not a call out. <laughs> but, but I think this is the way we've all been taught mm-hmm. to think about and and as you say, it makes perfect sense because this is what we're seeing mm-hmm. on a, a a moment-to-moment basis, or you know, this is how it's visualized or how in the, right. the neighborhood, right. right? But to be able to zoom out is much harder again because uh, a lot of, of the, marginalization, and, right? And, exactly, and invisibility as a product. That I but yeah, I think I think, and this is a really hard conversation to have with other Black queer and trans people, but it is one that I have a lot. Mm-hmm. That I think it's a very similar to the Black on Black crime framework. Yeah, that it's like actually. Uh, transphobia and anti-trans and anti-queer violence is ubiquitous. Actually, it's happening everywhere. Actually, it's state-sanctioned. Actually, it's fomented and and, and formulated from the state Mm -hmm. um, through the police and prison system, through... The well, you know, all these other structures as well, and that right, we're seeing the, the medical industrial of it, the medical industrial <laughs> complex, um, and we're actually seeing the results of it. And like any form of harm and trauma, that doesn't mean there's not accountability. Right, right. When when two black people hurt or harm each other, we still have to be accountable to each other, mm-hmm. and we still have to own our transphobia or our misogyny or you know whatever is leading to that harmful interaction. It's not that we're off the hook or that we don't have to face the reality of the hurt that we're causing each other. But if we only see it as an issue of Black people perpetrating harm on other Black people, even if it's cis Black people and trans Black people, or, you know, again, however those fault lines are going, we're missing the bigger picture and we're missing where those things actually come from. And for me, as a a Black gender nonconforming queer person, it's actually really important to, to not seat those issues with with the black community or to be like you know black folks are transphobic and need to work on their transphobia it's like well have you met white folks <laughs> hello <laughs> a a have you met white folks but b it's also like I, I think the only i think that that discourse also actually pushes black queer and trans people out of the community and teaches us like, oh, you're not going to be accepted here. Mm. And so you need to go somewhere So there's like a preventative maintenance of like, I'm just not even going to walk in that room because we know that that's how they look at us. Right. Rather than being like, I am black. For me, that's first and foremost over anything else. And like nothing is going to make me give up my people and my community, even transphobia, even homophobia. And 
as much as I have experienced homophobia and transphobia in black communities, I have experienced them everywhere else as well. (laughs) And also, as much as I've experienced harm in black communities, I experience racism, anti-blackness, classism, you know, all kinds of other harms that are equally damaging in white queer spaces or non-black spaces. And like that, I think... uh, I think we're always expected as black, queer, and trans people to choose which one is more important to us. Or mm. like, which one are you going to leave at the door so mm-hmm. that you can um, so that you can have community? And that's so your that you insistence is like, I'm just not going to make that choice. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. And you know me, I'll be gay as hell <laughs> when I come up in somewhere because I'm like, y'all going to deal with me today. Yeah. And, I, and I appreciate so much the work that you're doing because I know I can go into certain spaces because cis folks or straight folks are doing that work mm-hmm. and are having those conversations. So it, it really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think like what you're saying is important that it's like also where are we seeing these these uh, these values and these uh, these forms of oppression actually mm-hmm. originating from because it doesn't originate from black people. As we say, radical means to the root. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, 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 yes. Hmm. Something that that not original, but that that insistence of I'm not gonna like I'm gonna forge my own path and and, and going back to what we were saying about like utopic not being like literally means not a place like not a real place um shout out to damon for that little shout derivation. out to, shout Ed- out to this uh, etymology game oh, Come on, etymology. <laughs> we are i think we're leading the chicago podcast game in etymology ah let's do it <laughs> which if there's something i can hang my hat on it's that but um what else right now and whether it's like personally or in your work, because we didn't even really talk about what you're, what you make. <laughs> um, what are you insisting on these days, or what are you interested in learning how to insist on? Such a great question! Wow, I've never even thought of that before. Yeah, I'm insisting on the end of prisons, police, military, and capitalism. Uh-huh. Always gang, gang. and forever. <laughs> and I think actually insisting is an important word to be like. I'm not playing. Yeah. This is not a theory. <laughs> this is not a utopic vision. Right. It's like, nah, this shit's going to happen. Um, and I'm trying to make it happen as fast as possible. So definitely insisting on the abolition of all systems of oppression. But I think to take it f- full circle, yeah. back to my Saturn returns. All right. Because that's literally all I'm talking so about. So you're returning days. to the return? We're returning to the return. All right. Cycles. Mm-hmm. I think a huge thing I'm insisting on is my blackness being loved. Mm. Which, of course, connects to all of these things. That, like, I think a world where black people are loved is a liberated world. Mm -hmm. I think in order for black people to be worthy of love, um, all of these systems have to go. Um, So, like, black love and loving yourself as a black person is, like, so core to, to, like, liberation actually for the earth and for the planet, not just for our people in our community. But, like I said before, kind of coming out of... um, coming out of relationships where I put my blackness to the side Hmm. um, or coming out of uh, partnerships or collaborations where I left my blackness at the door or, or even sometimes fought for partners or fought for, for love that excluded my blackness and Mm. and didn't center uh, my blackness or treat my blackness as sacred um, has harmed me in so many ways and damaged Hmm. me in so many ways Um, and healing uh, over the last couple of years, up to the moment that we're having this conversation, has looked like um, apologizing to 
myself and mm-hmm. apologizing to my blackness mm-hmm. for not uh, for not loving it what and for not treating it as Did your sacred. blackness accept your apology? We're, we're rebuilding. I feel, I feel like your blackness left you on red. We're rebuilding. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but in a really, in a, like a really serious way, um, like having to relearn that, that nothing is, well, really having to learn that, that blackness is a living, growing, breathing thing. Hmm. And it actually needs to be tended to hmm. and taken care of. Hmm. And, when you do that, it it deepens and it widens and it opens new forms of wisdom and resiliency and power to you. Um, and when you don't take care of it, you lose those things. And when you don't nurture it, you lose access to those things. Um, and getting back, returning to that and being like, oh, my blackness is something that I need to take care of. And it's sacred and it's valuable and it it's at the center of who I am. And if you don't see it and if you don't believe in it and if you don't value it, you don't see, believe, or value me. Yeah. And why would I be in any relationship, any space, right. any anything where the most core parts of me aren't seen, believed, and held as sacred? Um, and so, again, seeing, like, blackness as my guide, um, not just politically or— uh, Aesthetically. Or aesthetically, but, like, in every aspect of who I am. It's like, no, blackness is the most sacred thing that there is. And if you don't agree with me on that, and if you're not going to treat my blackness as something that needs to be nurtured and cared for and treated as holy, then you don't need to be here. Hmm. Mm. And that goes for Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> that goes for anybody that don't know how to love black people. Uh, hmm. uh, wow. Yeah. That- <laughs> I, I, we could keep talking, but I think that's a, a beautiful, like... Talk about Saturn Returns. Yeah. 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 You killed it. Is there any any threads that come that have come out through this conversation that you want to go back to before we get out of here? Oh, I have one. Oh. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we keep talking about um tangible liberation uh and that insistence on moving toward that and, and, and the love that's needed for that, you know. I think a lot about like the when we talk about like art and liberation and all those ideas and where they work together. So much of it is like what art can do is it can help people feel free, and then when they feel free, they want to be free because mm. they, they're chasing that feeling. And I think mm. where I've seen, at least for myself, where I feel that most is when I can really dance uh, and then like <laughs> open and can move in that way. Um, and so I'm wondering for you as someone who that's part of your practice and just part of who you are is, is movement. Does it make you feel free? Mm. Let me add a, a, an addendum. How does uh, the ability to move as uh, move through space the way you do connect to some of that? Like I'm not putting any parts of me to the side. Mm. Uh, the the first form of Vogue that I learned is called New Way Vogue, and it's actually an older form. There's four major uh, styles of Vogue. Can you list them? Just for them? Old Way, New Way, Vogue Femme, Vogue Dramatics. And that way? New Way is actually from like the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, okay. more or less. Um, but it's a very uh, actually rigid and very controlled hmm. um, form of Voguing. Um, and uh, mm. the first 
the first performance piece that I wrote is called Dancer as Insurgent, and it's sort of about tracing the radical lineages of Vogue. Um, but also, um, Nui, I feel like, is such a metaphor for a lot of my personality, and again, a lot of sort of the work that I'm having to do in my life right now, where it's it's kind of freedom through control, <laughs> and it's like the precision and the the clarity kind of helps me feel safe. Yeah. Um, but that actually forms of dance and forms of movement that are about letting go of control um, and and giving up precision to pursue a feeling are actually much harder for me. Mm-hmm. I actually really struggle with that because I feel a lot safer when I know what the boundaries are and when I'm kind of moving within the boundaries mm-hmm. um, is actually like a, a, a comforting place for me. So like actually finding ways of movement that let go of boundary and that let go of clarity in some ways is really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um and the new piece that I alluded to, World After This One, um, is so different uh, from Dancer as Insurgent because with that piece, I was like really, I had like a, literally had like a thesis statement included at one point in the piece where I was like, this is what Vogue is and this is what I want you to know about it. And like come away from this piece understanding this mm-hmm. about what voguing is and what it means to me. Um, and this new piece... You had footnotes, correct? <laughs> I l- actually literally had footnotes. I wrote it. I originally wrote it uh, as uh, sort of like my senior thesis mm-hmm. at Wesleyan, actually. Mm-hmm. So it literally, actually... <laughs> um, you love when a joke goes literal. <laughs> oh, it's the best. <laughs> Good job. I live for those who talk about feeling just alive. Yeah, that's I got you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but part of what's uh there's been a lot of challenges working on this new piece but one of them is uh the gray area both in terms of movement but also in terms of like kind of releasing control of what folks take away from the piece Mm. um and and not actually i know you had a very clear answer to my question um but like not having for myself a clear answer to can something be liberatory and oppressive at the same time can something be healing and trauma inducing at the same time. Mm. Is that possible? Is that not possible? Mm. Um, is that a healthy tension or an unhealthy tension? Yeah. Like actually not having a clear answer to that and still kind of going into the movement, going into the the history, going into the words anyway, just kind of to seeing what I find yeah. and, and hoping that other folks can find some things there as well. Like being okay with gray area or being like, actually there's more nuance mm-hmm. here um, than I originally thought or Systems that I thought I was totally opposed to, I also need to acknowledge the ways that I benefit from or um, structures that I've described as inherently oppressive and needing to be abolished, I'm also the product of mm-hmm. and am also living in and navigating every day. Mm-hmm. And can I find liberation in that? Mm-hmm. Is liberation possible in that at the same time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, I, in the last, I mean, definitely like my, my life and movement. So the last four years, definitely like the last year and a half or two, uh, I've had a much more like conscious appreciation of movement and dance mm-hmm. and usually like free form, like, you know, not as much as like I'm going to dance shows. Uh, but, you know, you bringing up the question of like you finding uh, more freedom or seeing the association between freedom and movement. Do you can you trace the growth? I mean, it's a re it's a having to relearn things that I knew when I was younger. And mm. we don't have to right, I mean, right. we, we can open this we, we talked about story. go back and <laughs> I, I used to I used to dance a lot more. But oh. um <laughs> but yet, you know, I think it goes to a lot of what we've been talking about, about the ways that trauma's embodied and the like the physical implications of that and how different muscles and parts of your body hold pain and are locked up. And so the act of being able to move those parts and mm. let them breathe and let them flow. Um 
and it doesn't mean out of control like what you were saying like i i i loved what you said about having the the very pre- precise movement um within that container but what maybe and tell me if this rings true like maybe what is opening up about that is that you get to define what the container is mm. so you know you all the, all that precision all those exact ways that things are done that's not being like um that's not being defined for you and then you have to operate in them it's that you are you are creating it and you are deciding the where the precision lies and where the fault lines are that's what do you deep. think what do you think i'm gonna have to think about it okay <laughs> I, I have something to add I, I think i think dance and movement uh is a like very physical way to bring out like a theory that we usually all agree on that uh, oppression also harms those who benefit yeah. or, or harms the oppressor. Mm. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think whiteness, but also like cis heteromasculinity, mm. uh, I think really like display that. So something I realized probably in the last year, um, like growing up where not being allowed to move your body in a way that could be perceived as feminine or queer, mm-hmm. uh, like was very stifling, mm-hmm. right? And so then I realized recently, like it went from choosing not to, to like now I like phys- there's physical range of motion yeah. that like I cannot access with my body, and I just realized that as a limitation, because yes. uh, you know, and being in in more intersectional spaces, right? Like where I could, if I wanted to, I could play, uh, but it looks like I'm playing. Uh, and then I like compare that to like you know the general edict of like you know white people not being able to dance. In my experience at college, at least white people who go to Grinnell College. Well, this is dance. so. <laughs> there's this article. We'll share it on uh, on our Twitter. I obviously don't know whether the science is correct, but the article, the the subject is why white people can't can't dance. Colon, they're traumatized. Mm. So the the thesis <laughs> of the article, there was a, a a gesture of agreement from our esteemed guest. But here's like the thesis is white people can't quote can't dance because whiteness is a traumatized state that is disconnected from the body. Say it. Um, and so yeah, you should definitely read the article. It's it's fascinating. I keep it bookmarked. It's something I've, mm-hmm. you know. They they talk a lot about the like the psoas muscle, which is at the base of your spine and connects to your hips, and that being like connected to chakras, and that's where we like have protection and there's stiffness that relates to horses and chair, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so I'm still parsing out like what do I mm-hmm. think actually, w- regardless of what's like capital T true. There's a lot of like really interesting connections in here. So yeah, the yeah. ability to loosen up those muscles yeah, is a way this, of opening up trauma. This last year I've been dancing a lot more because also realizing that like normative spaces that there's like the moves that are out and like every three to five years those moves cycle out. Yeah. And like I didn't know the new moves <laughs> but I always have had rhythm, right? Like so I can dance but I didn't know the moves so in the spaces I just was like standing still on top of just like social anxiety yeah, and like yeah. parties. Uh, but like just trusting my 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 rhythmic sense and my butt and like you know creating patterns that did not exist yeah. before has been something that like I feel growing my spirit. I feel all of this so much, mm-hmm. and um, I started voguing when I was sixteen. I think okay. I might have said yeah, that, yeah. but I had come out when I was fourteen, mm. and um, I remember the most difficult period of that the most difficult part of that period was feeling like my blackness and my queerness were opposed to each other Mm. and feeling like one uh could not support the other Mm. and that 
Mm-hmm. To be black was was to not be queer, and to be queer was to not be black. Mm. And so, what did it mean for me to be both of those things mm. was confusing. Mm. Um, and Vogue was the first time that I saw a, a black queer aesthetic, and was like, "Oh, this isn't a new thing. Right. Not only does it exist, it's existed for a really, really long yeah. time. As long and as it's actually a existed. tradition." Hello. <laughs> And there's actually like a tradition and a history and a community that I'm already a part of and, and can draw on. Yeah. And voguing giving me the permission to be black and queer at the same time mm. and to move in a black queer way, not a queer slash black way, mm-hmm. but a black queer way. Mm-hmm. And how revolutionary that was for me as a young person. Taking over that intersection. Okay. And I also really feel what you're saying about the the complicated ways that oppressive structures harm oppressors. Um, and that being so tied to abolition for me, because I actually come from a police family. Mm. Um, and a lot of folks, I think, again, a lot of folks not actually understanding what the work of abolition is, think you are removed from the things that you're talking about, as opposed to like, no, it's because I have close relationships right. with police officers that I'm an abolitionist. Yeah. Those yeah. things actually absolutely go together. <laughs> I don't want to um, speak on your family, but like generally, statistically, police are the most like internally abusive people in households yes yes and so right the idea that actually uh you know i believe in abolition because i love black people and it's the it's the victims of state violence that are my priority but actually genuinely believing perpetrators benefit from abolition as well Mm. yeah i mean we're we're killing it right now this is wow is anyone still listening (laughs) savor this shit <laughs> I think we can I mean we could go forever and I'm excited to keep talking this is also just like the first time we've really gotten to chop it up so it's so it's so great to to share space with you I think we should do it's time I think it's time I'm excited for this let's so so we've gone all over the, the spectrum here we, we've talked about the, the intersections of identity we have liberated many minds but now it's time to get to the work so ergo radio we have a tradition here. It's a game we play. So you're not in a hot seat. I call it a lukewarm seat. Uh, you are on our side. I don't know. After an hour and 17 minutes, that chair might be that, toasty. There might be a little... <laughs> <laughs> there might be some booty heat happening. <laughs> but, but it's about accountability. And, and we are love-based in general. But in this specific moment, we use beef as our accountability tool. So there is a sect of the world that I believe in my lifetime, I'm now 26 years old, has run amok. And we shall stand for it no longer because as we have done the work, we see that the the amok running has gone back way further than our lifetime. And we are here to counter this storm. This group of people is R&B singers. Oh, my God. So every week we invite our guests to start beef with an R&B singer. And why? Beef with an R&B singer with Benji. <gasps> Who you got? Oh, my God. So from David Ruffin down to Tory Lanez, anything in between... For oh any reason, I want a name that I do not like living in beef. I, I like that. I like to squash it. Okay, as a general practice, you tenderize the beef. <laughs> <laughs> but if I have to beef with somebody, if y'all really gonna make me beef, mm. I'm going to beef with Ashanti. Ooh, and and, that's, and and why? I had a huge childhood crush on Ashanti. I I had well, I wanted to be on Murder Inc. really bad <laughs> in sixth grade. I wanted to be on Rough Riders. I really uh, wanted to be a Rough Rider. They they sold the the like five dollar Rough Rider chains at the mall, <laughs> and I really wanted a Rough Rider chain. I never got one. But then when I got to middle school, I really wanted to be on Murder Inc. For just for your general career, it's probably good you didn't get signed by either, <laughs> by either of those. If I had to go back and pick, I would definitely do Rough Riders. I would definitely not do Murder Inc. <laughs> but 
I, I'm lovingly beefing with Ashanti mm-hmm. because for a, as many hits as she had, she should have sung harder. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you mean just like vocally? Yeah. Vocally, she should have just gone harder. <laughs> like use your diaphragm. Use like, your diaphragm. Uh, Project. Uh, use your Ashanti. diaphragm, not the nose. Yeah. But I would also love a, a, an Ashanti comeback. I, I will say, as an Ashanti lover at a young age who then grew out of it, Seeing her now, like middle-aged Ashanti, is fine as shit. She got finer okay. from when I had the posters up on the wall. Can she sing? Can she still sing? I'm not going to make that claim. Okay. I used to have to take that on the chin a lot as as an Ashanti advocate, as a young boy. <laughs> My elders would try to like let, teach me that she was not singing well. <laughs> and I'm like, but then who is? You know, because at that time... Because at that time... Beyonce's vocals were too high. Ooh. That's wow, oh, You're about to get... Oh, oh. Oh, oh. But here was why I was conflicted because I had deep Murder Inc. beef. I really despised Ja Rule before really? Shanti came out. So it was like my least favorite and my most favorite oh. were always together. So I have a love, but now a little bit of envy for 50 Cent because he kind of like took my beef for me and he took it to places I could never go. And it could never You go. know, he did what I wanted to do. He got rid of the guy. But, you know, it's like now I'm kind of like in the bandwagon of, of Murder Inc. If you're interested in, uh, in seeing Ashanti live, she is performing in Wichita, Kansas this Saturday, the 15th, <laughs> at uh, 54 West Musical. But she's performing, though. She is out here. She's got a she's show, though. And then February... You can't say she's that. She's going to look good, too. Okay. And then February 22nd uh, at Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky, she'll be there as well. Okay, she's making her round. Absolutely. Them, them hips and thighs be oiled. <laughs> I'm through Mr. Shanti. Yes. I still love you, baby. It's all right. You got some beef, but it's cool. Speaking of love, I really love this conversation. Thank you so much for coming through, Benji. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you all so much for having me. How can uh, folks find you in the ways you want to be found? Um, I'm a freelancer right now, teaching, writing, and performing. So please hit me up at BenjiHeart.com. You also do retreat facilitation, which I was like, this is the ultimate lane. What a lane. (laughs) That's a just, just a brilliant lane. It got sprung on me. It was not something I knew was possible to do. But this last year, folks asked me to do it. I remain I retreating on a regular basis. <laughs> so I'm new to that game. Yeah. But I do also do retreat facilitation. And I love working with grassroots folks and just trying to be an outside support to help folks do the important work that I know folks are doing. It's Is there anything better than going on the retreat and then not having to go back to the office the day everyone gets back? That just seems yeah. like the dream. There's actually a lot of luxury in it for everybody. There's some challenges. It's It's not easy work, but it's also, I think folks appreciate not having to hold all the pieces, mm-hmm. like actually having someone come in for a second yeah. to hold some pieces. Yeah. The retreat is like the long form <laughs> version of the Q&A. Ah. Like you need someone to just kind of like guide it through or else it's going to get really messy. Because the Q&A <laughs> will go bad very yeah. quickly. Uh, so true. Social media or blog, any of those things you want people to It's all on BenjiHeart.com. Okay, but so that, that funnels you where you yeah, need to Yeah, you go. can link to it. You can all link right. to it from the air. All right. All right. Thank you so much for coming through. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week, mostly talking about my birthday. At least that's what I'll be talking about <laughs> with another person reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. You like games? Do you like these particular five games? You Don't Know Jack, Full Stream, Split the Room, Madverse City, Patently Stupid, and Zeeple Dome. Get five hilarious party games in the Jackbox Party Pack 5. It's now available on Xbox One, PS4, Nintendo Switch, Steam, and more. Visit jackboxgames.com for more info.